we cannot rely on the courts for justice, then we have to seek alternative ways to get justice. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, how many of you remember our Prime Minister saying this? We all know people who are deciding whether or not they are willing to get vaccinated. And we will do our very best to try to convince them. However, there is still a part of the population that is fiercely against it. They don't believe in science or progress and are very often misogynistic and racist. It's a very small group of people, but that doesn't shy away from the fact that they take up some space. This leads us as a leader and as a country to make a choice. Do we tolerate these people? Over 80% of the population of Quebec have done their duty by getting the shot. They're obviously not the issue in this situation. Well, what if the whole premise behind those statements was false? Or worse, what if it were fraudulent? Well, today's guest uh, is a, a woman named Gina Watil. She is a scientist and researcher, and she's written a book which reveals that, in fact, not only was a statement that I just read based upon no science at all. It was based upon fraudulent science. Welcome to the program today, Gina. It's a pleasure to have you on Gray Matter today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, your book, which uh, I enjoyed very much. Uh, all of our viewers and listeners know that uh, whenever we have a guest on who's written a book, I take the time to read it, uh, and I've done so with yours. And uh, before we get to that, actually, we're going to go to um, our usual feature, which is our framing aphorisms. These were chosen somewhat in your honor today. The first is science appears calm and triumphant when it is completed, but science is in the process of being done is only contradiction and torment, hope and disappointment. That's from Pierre-Paul Emile Roux, who is a French bacteriologist and developer of the first effect, effective treatment for diphtheria. Next one is from uh, a man named Dan Burton, who's an American, who said, how is it that mercury is not safe for food additives and over-the-counter drug products, but it is safe in our vaccines and dental amalgams? Next is uh, from uh, uh, a, a Twitter phenomenon named Abjit Nascar, uh, who wrote this poem. It's called The Vaccine Sonnet. It says, listen to the experts, listen to Fauci, grow up, you big sissy. Enough with the ouchie, I got the vaccine. Trust me, it's safe. Every scientist will confirm. Listen to reason, not hearsay. Vaccines produce immunity. Masks prevent the spread. If you follow some simple steps, you'll prevent someone's death. Freedom without reason is savagery. During pandemic, accountability is key. And finally, this one's my favorite. This is from President Joe Biden. And those of you who follow the president will really appreciate this. He says, we have to take care of the cure that will make the problem worse no matter what. Well, who do we have on the show today? Regina Watil. She is a uh, scientist, researcher, uh, PhD. She has extensive experience in the areas of program evaluation and risk-benefit analysis. She uh, understands the need for smart strategic solutions where benefits outweigh negatives 
and where the needs of each member of the community are duly considered. She actually ran in the last uh, federal election uh, for Maxime Bernier's uh, PPC party, of which I'm a member. Um, but more importantly, she's uh, written a groundbreaking new book called Fistman's Fraud. So, Gina, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Obviously, um, in my research on you, you've uh, completed a uh, PhD at the University of Western Ontario. Um, but how did you happen on to uh, or, or sort of get launched on this path that led you to write a book? It seems that uh, this is something you wouldn't have imagined uh, prior to COVID. So how did, how did this all come about? I'm very interested in sort of the origin story of your book. I can say that the, the origin of the book started when I read the Fisman study, but it started long before that. Um, I was right. paying attention to what was happening right from the get-go. And mm -hmm. uh, right from the beginning, the, the government's response didn't make any sense at all from a, from a um, risk analysis and a risk mitigation. Um, if you're trying to mitigate risk, they're, they're heading in the opposite direction almost at every turn. So I was very... Um, uh, aware of what the statistics were saying. I was very aware of the manipulations that were taking place. When Fisman's uh, fraudulent study came about, um, at first, I just tried to ignore it. It was just another ridiculous study. When, when, I, when I heard it on the, on the radio and I heard, well, I seen the, uh, the newspaper cl clippings, I thought, how ridiculous. But there was so many of them, just so many, and it mm -hmm. wasn't going away. So that's what prompted me to to read the study to see how they can possibly have reached the conclusion that they did. And right away, when I read that study, uh, it was obvious to me that it was a, a blatant case of scientific fraud. Like and, and the fraud is essentially that, uh, I'm, and I'm distilling this down quite a bit, uh, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the fraud was essentially that unvaccinated people, this was a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated posed a serious danger to everyone who was vaccinated. That was essentially the fraud. Is that right? Right. So I was, I was thinking about uh, how to describe this a little bit um, easier for, for people who haven't read the book. And I think it's important to understand that the timeline of when this book was written. Right. Uh, not the book, but when the actual study was written uh, sure. by Fisman and his two colleagues. Right. Um, so they wrote this study. It was published in April of 2022. So that's exactly when that, that statement I read off the top of the show. Sorry, I interrupt just to put this in mm -hmm. context. That statement I read from the prime minister was also released in April of 22. And that's not a coincidence, is it? Uh, the statement you're talking about, the one where he... Yeah says we're taking up space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that was beforehand, but it didn't get a lot of notice uh, yeah. originally because it was in French. Right. Um, but yeah, he said a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with regards to this study, it was written in April of 2022. So we're looking at after the Omicron surge. So the right. Omicron surge happened, you know, December, January, um, over the Christmas holidays. And it was a really bad. It was really bad news for the for the vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, you had record breaking surges in the number of daily cases. Um, it was quite clear the vaccines failed to curtail transmission. And our politicians and those who were pushing for uh, vaccine mandates and restrictions 
we're getting pretty desperate. So a lot of desperate things happen during this timeline. And instead of admitting, um, you know, the shortcomings of the vaccine and and their mistakes, the government basically doubled down. Right. So they doubled down. We had, um, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau was was blaming the unvaccinated for the surges. He was blaming the unvaccinated for uh, filling up hospitals. Um, He's blaming the unvaccinated for uh, the restrictions that he was putting in place. Right. Um, so that that's kind of uh, the background. And then you had um, in April of 2022, uh, Fisman came out with his study. And basically, uh, this study was used to prop up the vaccine mandates and the restrictions and to scapegoat the unvaccinated for um, for the vaccine's failure to curtail community transmission, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The fraud comes in in that they fabricated the the data and the results, and then they tried to pass off their fabricated results as a true reflection of what happened, as fact. And that right. is what constitutes the fraud. So um, you cannot unintentionally make something up pass it off as true and not know you're doing it. Right. So that would, that gets- would violate everything that, you know, science is, is about. And just, just backing up a step, your background is essentially in, in identifying uh, statistical trends and explaining what they mean. Um, or, and correct me if that's wrong, but that's my understanding. What, what was Ms., what was Fisman's background essentially? Well, Fisman is, um, He's a physician in internal medicine, uh, and he's also um, he, he's an epidemiologist, and he teaches um, mathematical modeling. So he teaches this right. subject. So he's well aware of what. Mm. Uh, well, he should be well aware of how to build a, a proper model. He should. You would hope. You would hope. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and this model, when you when you take a look at it, it doesn't just. It's not just scientific fraud. When you actually look at the modeling itself. Right. It is it is so bad on every level. Like you can critique it, just the scientific merit of this paper. It, there just isn't any. And when I wrote to, um, you know, CMAJ and uh, the University of Toronto and CIHR, I included a full a critique of the study and how it fails just on its scientific merit, let alone the scientific fraud. Mm-hmm. But I, I should mention one more thing that is very, very important. Um, not only did he fabricate the results and try to pass them off as true, but there was readily available data, government data, and the real world data showed the opposite of what he was saying. All right. So basically, he, when you look at the Omicron surge and you look at the government of Ontario data, it actually showed uh, that the proportion of uh, vaccinated people with getting COVID was higher than the unvaccinated. That's what the raw data showed right from the government Mm -hmm. of Ontario website. Mm -hmm. And he basically ignored real world data and flipped the trends and then passed that off as a true reflection of events. So you're basically overwriting the Omicron surge with a fake simulation that says the opposite. And then it went out to the public. Mm -hmm. And another interesting thing that happened was it, it was publicized everywhere, everywhere. You're looking at over, you know, 90 uh, media outlets t- 
talking about this study and warning people to stay away from unvaccinated individuals. Right. It's a, it was a public ostracization, really. Um, this modeling is very interesting, Gina. Uh, I, I came to grips with this when I was conducting a case in Alberta called Ingram, where we were challenging the, the, you know, the scientific basis for lockdowns. And uh, we, one of our experts was a brilliant scientist. Uh, you probably know his name is uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he's, uh, he was explaining to me how models are used by scientists uh, in just the way that you described. Those are people who, who are scientists understand modeling very well and can detect a fraud pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. to those of us lay people, especially let's say lawyers and judges, for example, these models can be very persuasive because we don't understand how they work. But uh, Dr. J actually showed me how in the Ingram case, um, the, 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 the government of Alberta was actually using climate modeling, was, was actually sort of plagiarizing climate models and using them, inputting you know, the data that they wanted in the models and then using that to justify, oh, I don't know, exploding, uh, you know, hospital beds, and you know the you know predicting the the entire collapse of the healthcare system, which I'm sure sounds very familiar to those of you who live in Ontario and every province in Canada. But this modeling seems to be, unfortunately, a very effective method for scientists to to execute the kind of fraud that you talk about in your book. Is that a fair statement? Okay, well, you had to break down a little bit because sure. I don't want to give modeling a bad name because basically <laughs> all of all of science uh, depends um, to some extent on modeling. Okay, right. so you don't you don't do any statistical inference without model assumptions and modeling, and it's very very important, and it and it plays an important role um, in in making proper inferences. Right. The thing is that you have to look at how it's being used and if it's being used properly. And mm. there, this is one of those topics where there's a lot of, of, of nuances. Mm-hmm. One of them is you can use, for example, modeling uh, to predict uh, what's going to happen, which is what you would be doing in this case with, with, with um, you know, infection rates and that type of thing. So a good model will make good predictions. So you can test whether your model was good or not. And you can also, your, your model has to be tethered to reality. Like the assumptions have to be tested that go into your modeling. Um, Disman didn't do any of that. And, and a lot of these models, they are completely un, untethered to reality. They just make up fiction. So when you look at, uh, at, at Dr. Fisman's uh, mod- modeling, um, he wasn't even predicting the future. He was he was actually modeling the past and getting it all wrong. Like, is this very different than some of the other models? Like, if you look originally at when um, the pandemic hit and they were going with Neil Ferguson's model in the UK right. that basically right. said, oh, my God, we all have to lock down. So that right there was, you know, basically the start of this modeling that resulted in lockdowns and that type of thing. Right. Anybody who, you know, is good at mathematical modeling would look at his model right from the get-go and say, no, it's, it's way off. It's, 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 it's off by, you know, an order or two of magnitude. And I did that calculation. I looked at the data that was known at the time back in March, 
looked at the curves, the worldwide data, kind of estimated when the curve would be flattened or we'd reach the peak, when it would start going down. And I got also an estimate of the in, in infection fatality rate. You could do this, uh, you know, a, a ballpark figure based on what we had, and it was way lower than Ferguson's. Right. As time went on, you know, it was obvious his model was 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 poor, and you could say it was bad. But mm -hmm. at least he was predicting the future, and you can test and say, yeah, it failed. With Fisman, he was trying to like overwrite the past. Right. Yes. <laughs> and and when you and when you brought it to their attention, like, hey, this surge happened already, and it was opposite. They didn't correct. They didn't do anything. They just kept with it. Well, and this is what's important also when you talk about inferences. Um, in your book, you you not only expose the fraud. You also draw some inferences about why it occurred and what it means for us. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, this, is the, this is another important topic is that people might wonder why I'm talking about uh, this study that happened back in 2022. It's over. Move right. forward. Go, go forward. The yeah. problem is that this has extremely important implications for the future. When you look at why the study was done, the study was done to justify basically mandates and, and vaccine mandates and, and passports. But by doing that, the, the, the authors were, the line of reasoning is that because vaccination impacts others, it should not be considered, or you may not consider it an individual right. So basically right. they're looking at I'd say they were attempting to reinterpret Section 7 of the Charters the way I read it, mm -hmm. in that right. um, it should not be considered an individual right. If it's not considered an individual right, then there was no violation by mandating vaccines. If, they, if you take that interpretation and you go forward, this is very bad for future mandates. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if, if there was no Section 7 violation, then the government would never have to explain itself um, under Section 1, Oaks test, right? The, the onus right. of proof flips to us instead of the government where it belongs. Right. I mean, I can, I can go off in a lot of different ways here in that a lot of what has been done is a flipping of the onus of proof, where the proof is yes. supposed to be versus where there it is. And I, I right. find this has happened across the board. When you, when you look at even looking at the the, the safety and, and the effectiveness of the of the vaccine, safety in particular, they're supposed to establish safety. We're not right. supposed to wait, look at the evidence, say, hey, look, it's unsafe. They're, supp they're supposed to test that it is safe. Right. But they've they've kind of flipped that and said, oh, you can't prove that it's not safe. Mm -hmm. Right. You're like, well, yeah. you collect the data, you own the data, you control the data. But we have to prove um, that it's unsafe. So there's, there's, throughout the whole pandemic, there was a flipping of the, the onus of proof. And I, I believe this is what is going on with the motivation behind this study. And, he, and the thing is that Fisman has done a lot of interviews and he's come right out and, and, and basically said that it undermines the notion that vaccine choice is an individual right. It undermines that. That was right. why they started off. The problem is that as he was writing this, the Omicron surge happened. Right. And then it's like, uh-oh, 
it's not looking good. So then he had to do double duty and blame the unvaccinated for this surge, which is right. uh, the amount of gaslighting, the scientific yeah. gaslighting that's gone into this is is shocking. Well, this this is one of the concerns actually when uh, you know, speaking of again of, of Jay Bhattacharya, he said one of the longest lasting, most detrimental impacts of um of of the pandemic, and it's because of what you're talking about, is the loss of confidence, public confidence in healthcare and in science. He described science uh as this conversation across time, as sort of a a, a species of freedom of speech. And the conversation is uh, across time is you know, uh, the best example would be the peer review method, where somebody has an idea and hypothesis, they, they, they put that forth with certain evidence, and then somebody else comes along and says, well, no, you ha- you, that, that's not right, you haven't looked at this, you haven't looked at that, and the sort of strongest deal is forged and hot as fire, we get the best ideas. And this is why science, as an inquiry, uh, as all intellectual inquiries, whether it's in art or music, literature, law, whatever, is a search for truth. That's what it ought to be. Yeah. But what you're talking about is a manipulation of science uh, for some other motive other than to reveal truth. And that that kind of gets at the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Well, here's nothing. I go I'd go further. Um, it's I'm not sure you can even call it science because they didn't follow the fundamental principles of science at mm. all. You can actually um, shatter their narrative just going back to fundamentals going back to the very basics they fail everything and the reason why they were able to do that um is because of the censorship because they they did not allow the debate if they had allowed the debate if we had open and honest communication i can't see this ever happening because it was so obviously wrong now i'm not just talking about i'm not just talking Mm -hmm. about fisman's study i'm talking about a lot of what went on during the pandemic. The only right. way that this could have gone forth is because of the censorship. It's because mm-hmm. they did not allow scientists to weigh in. So to call right. it science right. when it basically can be shown to um, fail, the most fundamental principles of science, yeah, that's called like pseudoscience maybe. Right. Okay, that's not science. And so what, what they did was they they really... They really destroyed the reputation of real science. Mm-hmm. And the censorship is not over. Uh, in fact, uh, as you know, there's a situation in New Zealand right now where there's actually a man who's in jail. He's a whistleblower. Uh, he's mm-hmm. revealed that uh, about 11,000 high-ranking public officials, politicians, quote, New Zealand elite, uh, <laughs> actually uh, lied about the fact that they were vaccinated. They were actually exempted outside of public knowledge and you mentioned off camera before we came on that in fact your own book uh has suffered some degree of censorship so that censorship is something that's not back in april of 2022 it's happening right here right now isn't it well yeah it just keeps going along and getting worse and worse and and it it pretty much has to in order for this narrative to continue in order for this um what's going on to continue. I mean, they have issues because things have worked out so badly in terms of, um, like it's so bad, it's it's hard to hide. And so you right. need an extreme amount of censorship to keep things going. And I think 
what we have to realize is that we already have a lot of evidence that can be used. We already have, I believe, we really have enough to- That's a great point, yeah. yeah. We do, we, we need to yeah. use what we have. And, and part of what I do in this book is showing that we can use what we have at the very basic level. It can be simple and um, simple, systematic, strategic. And you can mm -hmm. do a lot of damage on that. And people understand that. People understand um, when you show them a graph and, and you show, this is what the real data said. This is what he said. It's very easy to see that, for example, Fisman flipped reality. Like this is, right. and it's powerful. And it's, yeah. and, and it's a very, I took a very systematic approach because at first when I seen this study, I thought, oh my goodness, it's fraudulent and it's being used mm -hmm. to scapegoat unvaccinated people. So my original intent was to um, basically get the paper retracted and set the record straight. That's it. Mm -hmm. Stop the scapegoating, set the record straight. Let's correct for it. I think this is one of the things that you've done extremely well in your book, actually, is I would call it relatable or digestible science for people who are not scientists. Um, and, you know, other people agree. Uh, there's a couple of uh, very... Uh, you know, very compelling reviews. One of them says is that this is from uh, Ted Koontz, who's the president of Vaccine Choice Canada. He says that your book is both a disturbing and exhilarating read. It exposes what is effectively a crime scene with various agents complicit in producing fraudulent science that was used by media and the prime minister to fuel hatred and societal division. Uh, he says you reveal in precise detail how every system of oversight and accountability from the University of Toronto to the Ontario Provincial Police failed in their duty to act with integrity. Uh, he says the exhilarating aspect is that the book shines a bright light on those responsible. You name names and you call them out for what they are, morally bankrupt. He says your book gives hope that by exposing the fraud, justice may prevail and civility restore to this nation. And, um, you know, he's right. And, and, uh, and your, your book is part of an encouraging uh, movement in the in the Canadian polity that I think is showing up in certain statistics. For example, about ninety seven percent of the Canadian population is resisting boosters. Um, so so you know you're you're actually doing a lot of a lot of good uh, and performing. I I think uh, that the, at least providing a counter narrative to people like Mr. like Dr. Fisman. Right. Thank you. Um... Yes, it, it provides a counter narrative, but I think um, one of the things that this does is by going through the different agencies that were involved mm -hmm. and for them doubling down and, and, and backing the fraud, knowing it was fraudulent, that's extremely incriminating. And I didn't just go back to them once or twice. I went several times, you know, each time showing arguments that no, you know, like take a look at this. I was very clear. I wanted to make sure there was. Um, you know, no um, misinterpretations about what I was saying, that that I wanted to make it as clear as possible, show that it was fraud, and they stuck to it. And then when they, it seemed when they were backed into a corner, they would close the file. And each time they did that, I'd go mm -hmm. to the next person on the rung, right? So first wow. I went to the Canadian Medical Association mm -hmm. Journal. They didn't really engage in dialogue. I went to University of Toronto. They have a process in place where they have to respond to me. But when I back them into a corner, they, 
they closed the file. And then I went to the funding agency, which was CIHR. That's that's federal money. Okay. And yeah. the federal government funded this. It was used in parliament and they're not going to correct the record. This is highly incriminating. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe my book shows a, a very strong case as to why protections need to be put in place. And this is where I'm going next. We, right. To me, this book sh- should be enough to uh, basically amend the human rights codes and acts in the in the different provinces. Mm-hmm. It, it really is when when you're when you have researchers and the establishment, you know, resorting to fraud in order to to bring about vaccine mandates. We need protections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds as though you sort of had a bit of a Martin Luther journey. You're tr- trying to reform things from within, and your book was sort of the posting of your ninety five theses on the cathedral door. <laughs> Uh, and and hopefully it'll have uh, that type of reformatory impact upon upon our situation. Um, I'd like to get your take on a couple of things, a couple of recent stories that are related to your book and, and the topic. Uh, there was a recent story that came out um, uh, from Health Canada. Uh, court documents reveal Canadians were unwittingly subjected to phase three medical trials through, through the pandemic. Essentially, Health Canada risked the lives of millions of Canadians by altering their approval process so they could expedite the Pfizer vaccine. Essentially, that uh, we were unwittingly the trial group for this vaccine. Obviously, uh, your book not only supports that idea, but also supports that uh, certain scientists, including Dr. Fistman, tried to cover that up. Um, what does this mean for us? And what, what, do, what can we do about this at this point? I go into a little bit in the book, all the different, um, you know, failures in the system. Yeah. <laughs> and and one of them is when you look at uh, the clinical trials. So the, the problem we have is that it was pretty well known this was experimental. They keep saying it's not experimental, but it, it was. All you have to do is actually read the clinical trial reports themselves, which, you know, Mm -hmm. the FDA was using, Health Canada was using, they have the, and it's also what, you know, we did in our family right away. I believe it was my daughter who was the first one to read them. She came up to me and said, mom, what's going on here? Did you read this? I read it and I'm like, holy, you know, like it was, it was bad. It was, they did not prove the things that the, that the government was, was, was claiming. Um, so when you, especially when you look at, um, effectiveness, all right, the clinical trials never established a reduction in mortality. They never established a reduction in hospitalization. It didn't do those things. So for the government to say, take this and, you know, you will reduce your chance of, of, of death or hospitalization that did not happen in the clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but, but they also play a lot with definitions they also play a lot with words um and they play a lot with the data so i don't know there's there's so many branches we can go into where Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's just manipulating uh at all levels but but the thing is also that if you if you go back to some of the government documents uh including you know what the what the chief you know government scientist says there's admissions in there that they didn't know if it curtailed transmission. They didn't know what it does to certain subpopulations like, you know, pregnant women. 
it, it's it's actually all out there. It's just not being reported mm-hmm. on. Like the mm-hmm. media has chosen not to report things that mm-hmm. are well, you know, should have been well known. Right. So for people to be discovering it now, that's a failure of the of the media to a large, a large right. part. The but the question that I think people watching this and and the people are wondering is why 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 the cover up and why is every government in Canada still pushing the vaccines especially the federal government even in Alberta uh, where our premier has been more outspoken than really any other uh, premier in Canada about the unvaccinated and about vaccines these vaccines are still available to, to small children so yeah. why given all that we know are do we still have vaccine uh, manufacturing factories being constructed in Canada. Uh, taxpayer dollars in the billions are still being spent on more and more doses of these vaccines. Why is that all occurring despite what you reveal in your book? Well, I guess it's occurring because no one's stopping it. I mean, wow. this has been, this has been, a lot of people have benefit, well, not a lot, I guess a small elite group of people have benefited uh, from what went on in during the pandemic. You know, there are people who got very, very rich from what happened. There was a lot of would Fisman be would Fisman be one of those in your view? Well, I mean, you, you would have to do an investigation into his, you know, financial statements, which I didn't do. It would be interesting right. if you know RCMP did look at that. But when you right. look at a lot of these people like Fisman does have a lot of ties to the pharmaceutical industry. He has a mm-hmm. lot of, and, and, and it's, you know, there, there's the financial aspect, but there's also the ideological aspect. Um, there's a lot of politics at play here uh, and a lot of power. So they show no sign of slowing down, even though we, we know, we know what's going on. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so bad. You can't hide it. And yet they keep, going forward. I think one of the things they're going to have a problem with is originally they're trying to say that they didn't know, we didn't know better. Um, and it's also why I go in my book through the timeline. Like in one of the chapters, I, I, I look at, you know, I carve a path through the pandemic of what was known and when versus what they were telling us. And you can see that we are being lied to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, oh, it was it was a novel situation. We didn't know what to do. As time goes on, and they do not correct, you can't keep clinging to the we didn't know because there's right. been no course correction. Mm-hmm. But they keep going forward, and we they keep bringing in you know more rules about disinformation, allowing them to censor more, allowing them to you know a lot of people get canceled. Um, that, that's that's where we're headed. So unless mm-hmm. they are held to account, we'll just keep going in that direction. We actually mm-hmm. need to start holding people to account, and we mm-hmm. we need to start putting protections in place. Um, right, and yeah. that's an interesting point. I, I'm interested to get your take on on uh, on this. Um, the National Citizens Inquiry um, just released uh, a comprehensive report, about 5,400 pages. Um, and just before that, last month, that is in November, uh, in Alberta, there was a, a Manning uh, panel, an inquiry into the government's handling of COVID-19. Each of those documents 
recommends full-blown public inquiry into uh, COVID-19 uh, and specifically government's handling of it and changes in the law, some of which you recommend in your book. Um, so do you agree, for example, with the NCI report and also with the Manning Inquiry uh, panel report that what we need in Canada and really in every province is a, is a full-blown public inquiry or a series of them that have the teeth and the force of law that can subpoena certain people, including people like Dr. Fisman, put them under oath, cross-examine them, and if necessary, actually indict them and hold them to, to, to the full standard of, of the criminal law. Do you agree that that's something that is needed in our country? Yeah, we, we, we would need that. But what we've seen so far um, is we're far from that. Yes. I mean, especially you know probably better than anybody, um, the courts throughout all of this have not have, have not uh, done their duty. No, okay, they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear the evidence. They've made it yeah. very clear that they'll do anything not to hear it. Yeah, <laughs> actually, right? Yeah, the Supreme this Court of Canada has actually refused to hear, exercised its discretion to refuse to hear any case dealing with COVID thus far. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't surprise me because right off the top, you had you know uh, the Supreme Court basically going into in a committee with the Liberals. Mm -hmm. about how to handle things like they were were totally on board with a lot of the measures they were totally on board with um bringing in their own vaccine mandates before the federal government even did it so if you have mm -hmm. the supreme court doing that you know we're we're in, we're in trouble that's mm -hmm. that's an uh, that's an issue so although i think yes we need an inquiry uh we need those things but we have to look at whether we're going to get them and right now what i see is the nci for example, there's a lot of good information there. We can yes. already use it. If the courts think, this is what I, I look at what the courts are doing. And mm -hmm. I think to myself, wow, they're really undermining their authority and they're undermining their credibility. Mm -hmm. And people start, start to look at them and say, you know, if we cannot rely on the courts for justice, then we have to seek alternative ways to get justice. And mm -hmm. I think that might be where things are going. We're not yeah. going to wait and, and it's like, oh, you said too bad. So I guess it's too bad. It's like, no, that is not acceptable. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to always be people uh, in the way and you just have to figure out how to get around them. Right, right. You talk about the courts, uh, the uh, former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, in fact, the longest serving one, Beverly McLaughlin, who now sits on a human rights tribunal in China. Drink that in for a moment. Uh, she said this in the wake of the Freedom Convoy. She said, freedom without limits slides imperceptibly into freedom to say and do what you want about people who don't like you or talk like you. Sadly, the Ottawa Truckers Convoy has revealed this ugly side of freedom. And she went on to say that effectively um, things like uh, masking, uh, crossing a border without a vaccine certificate, how many people can attend a school, uh, a party, who gets to go to school are all things that a government is entitled to use as mm -hmm. limits upon uh, charter protected freedoms. Uh, and I think you and I agree that's essentially a Pandora's box. That's, that's a Promethean power that, that no government and no court should be able to exercise. And, and if they can, then we're deluded if we think we're living in a free and democratic society, right? Yeah, I mean, 
throughout the pandemic, they've 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 twisted everything. Everything they said about uh, going after people, anybody you don't like and don't want to hear. Well, that is what has been happening to anybody who did not agree with what the government was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. say that it, you know, and when you look at the trucker convoy, um, they were basically protesting uh, mandates. They're they're yeah. protesting um, unconstitutional measures. So the root of that mm-hmm. is, were the measures. They were unconstitutional. Um, you know, nobody should be able to dictate what you put in your body. Period. Mm-hmm. That is supposed to be uh, protected. Um, yeah. And the government and, and and the courts don't even want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, we have top legal intellectuals like Timothy Caulfield, uh, who recently <laughs> received the Order of Canada. Uh, yeah. He 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 said he tweeted this out during the convoy. He said. The Freedom Convoy is about the vaccines. He says, don't get distracted by the right spin. He says, I understand the supply chain issues. Challenging. But he says, but countries require a bunch of things to cross borders. Um, passports. Mandates work, are supported by Canadians, and are legally justifiable. So when you have, you know, some of your top legal intellectuals in the country saying things like that, while the convoy is going on, uh, you know you've got a serious devaluation of of freedom in our in our country, and as you say, this is only just just beginning. And then we have some of the interesting financial disclosure. For example, it came out recently that Canada paid the highest prices. Which shouldn't surprise anybody. Canada paid yeah. the highest prices in the world for COVID nineteen vaccines at thirty eight dollars per shot. Now I, I did some quick. I'm not a the mathematician in your class. But I did some quick, I did some quick math, and, and based on the numbers that have been revealed, uh, that's that's about two and a half billion dollars just on the first two shots. So we're talking about really big money here, aren't we? Oh yeah, we we, we spent a lot of money and a lot of money uh, on you know expired vaccines, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've, which are just wasted, right? Yeah, I mean, Unreal. yeah, they 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 spent a lot getting the vaccines, and then they had to spend you know. They, they tossed a lot of the vaccines because mm-hmm. the yeah. quantities that we, we, we procured were absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, from, from what you were saying, there's so many things in there. Uh, you talked about Timothy Caulfield and I, mm-hmm. I always find it's, in, it's interesting that they say, Oh, it's, it's legally justifiable. It's like, is it because we're not allowed to talk about it. The Supreme court doesn't want to hear about it. They don't, they've never had to justify what they did. And when I go through, one of the first things I did uh, early on, um, this was before the mandates, and there was talk, oh, there, you know, like, you know how the, the, the media often puts out little things that, so you know what's coming, right? So there's talk about mandates right. well before yeah. the mandates, like that would never happen, but they're kind of prepping us for the fact that it was going to happen. And at that time, I thought, well, can they do it? So I look, you know, I look into law. I'm not a lawyer, but I, I can read. And so I looked up, you know, Oak's <laughs> test and I looked up the criteria and, and they're saying that the scientific evidence, I'm like, well, what statisticians do is they look at scientific evidence. We know basically one of the roles of a, a statistician is understanding how data can be used, what you can and cannot say, what inferences right. can be yeah. made, what can't. So I look at what the government was saying, and I'm like, can they make those claims? And it's like, no, they can't make these claims. 
what would they have to collect? What data would they need to make those claims? And how would they have to collect it to make those claims? So I look at that. And then I also look at what the data does say. So even though a lot of it, a lot of the data has shortcomings, there are things that you can say from the data. So one of the things we do as statistician is we assess the evidence, okay? Um, and when I looked at Oak's test, for example, in law, I said, okay, they say it's based on scientific evidence. So I went through the criteria and I'm like, it fails them all. It fails every, yes. so they keep saying yes. it passes it. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And if we could go to court, right. we would show it. So you don't want us to go to court. That's yeah. how I see it. They yeah. know it doesn't pass. So you're, now I feel- You're right. Yeah. You're right. But, but the problem is this, Gina, when you go through the Oaks test, you're looking, you're applying that test in the way that I think it was originally intended. And that is to, in a, as far as possible, be objective and looking at what is correct. But right. the way that it changed during COVID is that correctness, which is an objective standard, was, was de-emphasized. And what was overemphasized, hyperemphasized, was reasonableness, which, as you know, is a subjective standard. That is what happened with the Oaks test. And that's what's happened in our courts. And I don't know if that same standard has uh, sort of been, been uh, diluted, D-I-L-U-T-E-D, uh, diluted in science in the same way that it has been in law. But I can tell you in law, it has with disastrous effects. Yeah, well, in, in science, you know, when you're doing any kind of hypothesis testing, you, you have your, your default hypothesis. This, this right. doesn't change. I mean, they have been changing it. They've been flipping it, but it's, yes. it's a joke. Like you can go through, yeah. it's like, well, then it's unscientific. Everything that you're doing now is unscientific if you do that, right? right. So that's happened during the clinical trials. That happened mm -hmm. with, uh, with a lot of things. Um, and reasonableness, yeah, I, I noticed that they're kind of slipping around that. And, and they've been a lot playing a lot from what I can see with flipping the onus of proof when it comes to legal standards as yes. well. Like there's yeah. been a lot of playing around. Um, so our job really is to show that it is not reasonable, make it very mm -hmm. obvious it is not reasonable, mm -hmm. and then try to put the onus of proof back where it belongs. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's challenging. That's challenging mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you, and you know, <laughs> well, I, I guess what I tell people is we lose, we lose until we win, uh, but we don't stop yeah. fighting. And uh, in the same way, I mean, people like you who are scientists and researchers, you keep telling the truth, right? Until you drown out the lies. Um, but, you know, and you talk about this in your book, um, these, these lies and their impacts are not in the past. Uh, and there was a recent study that was just re revealed on November 27th of this year, showing that uh, deaths from COVID uh, increased in 2022 after the COVID vaccine was introduced while deaths due to unspecified causes also skyrocketed. How strange is that? Um, and uh, Maxime Bernier, uh, who's the leader of the party that, uh, that you ran for in the last election, he says these numbers should be front page news. He says we were bombarded daily with data about deaths during three years, but the lying media are completely ignoring it. you agree with his assessment on that point? Well, yeah, they, they have to... Uh ignore it because it looks so bad um by their own measures by their own measures these vaccines have failed 
That's what it shows, right? COVID mm-hmm. deaths mm-hmm. did not decrease, they increased. Um, what happened during Omicron was, was really interesting. I, I go through the book, the timeline. So the fact that it, the vaccines didn't stop transmission was well known before Omicron. It's just that Omicron made it so obvious. They couldn't even, no manipulations could make it look good. So what happened is they stopped reporting it. So I think this is what Maxime's going on, right? It's like, well, we're yeah. just not going to look anymore because it makes everything look bad. So that's, right. you know, before they could manipulate things a certain way and they could, and I could go through the different manipulations that are possible to show um, how bad it was, but it did get to a point where there's just nothing you can do except ignore it, you know, mm-hmm. ignore it and overwrite it like Fisman did. Let's like mm-hmm. pretend that didn't happen. This is the reality we want. So we basically did this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but that's but your book is your, your book is changing hearts and minds. There's another review from uh, Vincent Gersis, who's a veteran police constable with the OPP. He's a forensic colli- collision reconstructionist. So a scientist like you, he says your book is a must read. It slices through the layers of lost integrity, accountability, and responsibility to reveal the greatest deception of our time. That's quite a statement. He says, easy to read, but hard to swallow. That's a nice way to put it. The facts speak volumes in implicating those in power who intentionally failed to keep the ship off the rocks. Although the content is specific to Ontario, the implications were deadly, far-reaching, and the situation warrants further investigation. I couldn't agree more. He says, those responsible are currently still at the helm and the ship is in dangerous waters. Yeah, we have the wrong and we have the wrong captains. <laughs> That's a huge problem. Um, do you foresee that uh, any of this is going to change without uh, some kind of a regime change? We see this starting to happen in New Zealand where there's, there's a sort of urgent call for accountability. Uh, you know, could Jacinda Ardern be sought for potential misconduct in medical mandate crisis, as uh, Jim Ferguson uh, in the UK is is, is saying. Um, is it realistic to expect that anything is going to change in Canada while uh, while the Liberals are still in power? Or, you know, why, why for example, Mr. Ford, uh, who guided Ontario or misguided Ontario through the pandemic, is still in power? Do you think there's any chance that this is going to change uh, in the short term? Well, I probably have a slightly different... Uh take on this than, than, than other people. So I don't think everything's going to be fixed just because like if in the case where we had a change, a regime change, uh, that would be good. That'd be a great start. And and I know a lot of people are, are, you know, Pierre's doing really good in the polls and that would certainly be a step in the right direction because, you know, we need to get Trudeau out, but do I think that will be sufficient? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I think that we, we need more than just, the politicians aren't going to save this. Okay. A lot of them got us in this mess. Um, and there's a lot of corrections to take place. So I just don't see them all happening just because you change um, your political leader. Although, like mm-hmm. I said, it's great. That would be a great place to, 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 to start. The issue also is that we're not due for an election for a couple more years and people speculate saying it will happen sooner, but you know, Trudeau's not doing well in the polls. And as long as, uh, the NDP prop them up. It's safer for them to stay where they are. Mm. So, he's also got a new. He's got a new pitchman now, uh, exactly. Mister Mr. Valakat, who is uh, very outspoken about the unvaccinated, as you know. Yes, 
Well, this is where I probably differ from, from people. I'm looking at this and I'm like, the assumption is that we have to wait for politicians to leave and we have to wait for a regime mm -hmm. change. And I'm kind of by the mindset thinking, uh, I think that we can start, the people have power in numbers and we can start mm. pushing for accountability now. We just have to uh, be strategic on how we go That's about refreshing. doing that. That's refreshing. So I, yeah. Part of the reason I wrote this book is because it's like, you know what? Fismans was obvious and it's easy to show and it implicates major players. Okay. And implicates them in a very bad way in terms of you used fraud to do this. Mm. We need to be protected from you. So I think that it does have the, if, if, if we leverage it, it has the ability for change. We can start mm -hmm. there because Fisman's modeling and what they have done, that cuts to the core of the pandemic response. It cuts to the core of the mandates. And if you have that based on fraud, this is, this could do a lot of damage to their plans and their narrative. I don't mm -hmm. think we should wait for, you know, for Pierre to come in. I mm -hmm. think that we can, we can, you know, force change based on what we have. We just have mm -hmm. to be strategic. So yeah, that's I, kind of where yeah. I'm coming from. Yeah. And uh, it's obvious that you're very passionate about it just to listen to you speak and also uh, in the book. And the other thing is that there's no guarantee with a regime change that anything will change, at least on the COVID file. And that's part of the point of your book. Um, speaking of your book, uh, turning to our reading list, uh, your book obviously is featured. It's called Fisman's Fraud, The Rise of Canadian Hate Scientists. Uh, and uh, as you've been hearing, it describes when pseudoscience, politics, and fraud converge. It asks the question, what lengths will ideologically or financially driven researchers and politicians go to impose their will upon others? And it answers that question, among others. Um, she is the, in the book, uh, she examines uh, the man, the politics, and the intent behind the, the faux study, how researchers concocted results to overwrite reality and scapegoat the unvaccinated. She talks about the establishment's willingness to go along with the fraud, how political ideology fed into the analysis, how the research is being used now to swindle Canadians out of their charter rights and freedoms, all of that and more in this incredible book. And there's a companion, actually. Um, uh, as you've heard, uh, Gina is a scientist. All of this is copiously and carefully documented. And there's actually a supplementary reference book that you can purchase, uh, which goes into and provides in detail all of her references uh, so that you can check these for yourself, cross-reference them. Um, and so those of you who really want to take a deep dive into this book, uh, there's no, there's, you could go really, really deep. Uh, so um, we're pleased to feature that book. The other book uh, that I'm going to mention before I turn it over to our guest uh, is called Forgotten History, Civil Rights in Canada. This is written by someone who I consider one of the two or three leading journalists in in Canada his name is Con Lord Conrad Black um, and I would recommend that people read this book in conjunction with his 2018 book which I've mentioned previously on our program called the Canadian Manifesto 
This book, as I said, is called Forgotten History, Civil Rights in Canada. It's a short read, but what it talks about are the many recent events in Canadian public life that have highlighted the evolution of the concept of individual rights in this country. And this is also a topic that, uh, that, that Gina covers in her book. Uh, but the description here is that it was at the forefront of the controversy over the truckers' convoy and the invocation of the Emergencies Act last year and was the entire substance of the dispute between Professor Jordan Peterson and the administration of the University of Toronto and those who wish to coerce him into addressing them and the new pronouns that vary or obscure gender identification. He says there's a trend going on in our country uh, that's been amplified by controversies over adaptations of apparel to accommodate religious affiliation and over language rights of minorities in both official languages in Canada. He says that uh, this is why uh, Lord Black is very committed uh, to preserving our individual rights and civil liberties in Canada. We have a very proud history of that in our country uh, that is being lost. Uh, it's being lost uh, through fraudulent science. It's, be being, it, it's, bring, it's being lost through manipulation of the public using fraudulent science. Uh, and it's being uh, also lost through misinterpretation of, of, of science and misrepresentation of scientific evidence in our courts. Um, and so um, I think that that book is kind of an interesting companion piece to uh, Gina's book. So uh, Gina, I wonder if you could uh, go through your mental Rolodex and provide uh, uh, you know, a couple of selections from your, uh, from your history, from your knowledge, uh, that you think would be useful and could be added to our reading list uh, for, our, for our listeners and, uh, and viewers. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to, to, to have some, some, some books to, to discuss. And there's a couple that are on my reading list right now. I'm, I'm looking at, um, I think it's called Canary in a COVID World, where I'm looking at anecdotes uh, of different yes. uh, Yes, researchers. It's a collection of I, anthology of essays. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I have that. I still have to read it, and I'm and um, I'm just starting to read uh, Tom Morazzo's book with about the Freedom Convoy. Yes. But the other thing that I'm thinking is like right now, I'm very geared towards looking at what we have in terms of evidence and 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 how we can use that. So, really, I would like people to give the. Uh, the NCI report, uh, a read and look at right. that and look what came out of that and see how we can use some of that information um, and evidence. So I think that's that's where my mindset right now is, yeah. is looking through the evidence and, and figuring out how we can use that. And those are um, those are great. Uh, those are great selections. They, uh, the, 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 the one about uh, Canary in a COVID world. It's interesting because uh, it's published by the Frontier Center for Public Policy, of which I'm a senior fellow. I actually wrote, I actually wrote a uh, a commentary on that book, which is a, a collection of essays by uh, you know leading, you know scientists. And in fact, uh, you know, a chapter in that book from you would have been very uh, <laughs> very suitable. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned Tom Morazzo's book because. Uh, we recently had him on our program, and when I asked him to recommend books, he recommended yours. Uh, and uh, and so that's that's wonderful symmetry. This idea of canary in a coal mine uh, is kind of appropriate coming from you because those of you who don't understand this metaphor, uh, it back in in former times when uh, miners used to work down 
deep in the dark, dank depths of the earth, uh, they were very concerned about uh, carbon monoxide, which is a, a poisonous, fatal gas, but which is, uh, you know, has no odor. You don't know it's around. And so they would keep a canary around uh, down in the coal mine. And if the canary died, you would know that you're soon, you're soon going to be next unless you get out of there. And, you know, people like Gina, uh, who are writing these incredible books, in a real sense, uh, are our canaries. Uh, they're singing out the song of truth. And we really, really need to, to pay attention. And so I hope everyone here who's listened to her today uh, will, 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 will also get her book and support the work that she's doing because uh, these truth tellers in science um, are, are, are absolutely essential. And with the government's increasing encroachment into censorship of our news, censorship of books and information that's available to us, uh, we really must support people, authors like, like, like Gina Watil, who are writing these incredible books and documenting for us, you know, the truth about what, what really happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, and more importantly, what it means for us going forward in terms of how uh, these things that are happening, these, these fraudulent scientific uh, uh, reports and, and other government-supported uh, actions are actually impacting our institutions, our cherished institutions, and are reshaping in a very uh, negative way and in a very adverse way, in a very destructive way, the country that we live in. So that at more and more, it's looking less and less like the Canada that, that Gina and I had the pleasure and the privilege to grow up in. So Gina, I want to thank you again for being our special guest here in Grey Matter. Thank you for writing such an incredible book and for being a truth teller in science. Uh, and I wish you much continued success, not only with the book, but with all the incredible work that, you're, that, that you are doing. Okay, well, thank you very much for, for having me on your show. And, and I'd like to thank all those uh, who are supporting me in, in this endeavor. I've gotten some really fantastic feedback. It really does, you know, help with morale and it does, uh, you know, keep me going. So I'd like to thank everybody for that. And, uh, and I'll just continue doing my thing. 